Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Well, good morning, Mike. Good morning. So recently you've written about um, common good capitalism. You hint at it in one of your recent uh, blog posts. And, um, you know, this is the first time uh, we've done this, but you, you sent me over one, one of your upcoming uh, posts that, that will be going on, I think, when we release this. So it should be good. But um, common good capitalism, I, I, I get it. I love it. I think in today's political climate, I'd love to understand uh, how we make sense of it. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, it's interesting as we've, we sort of have the old school way maybe of looking at politics, which is you have sort of your, your big picture ideas and that kind of leads you towards thinking about the world in a certain way. You know, what I think in the enlightenment we call the worldview and, um, you know, you just kind of lean towards those things. You don't necessarily know all the facts behind it. And then fast forward, here we are in a world full of facts and full information, full of information. And, and it seems now not much difference has, has really been made here. The only, the only change is we just have more information to back that we think we're right. So I, I almost see it as each, each side here understands that, uh, there are facts of the world and all these facts back up my position. So now all I've gained is hubris, not necessarily uh, knowledge or wisdom in how I pursue politics. And so when it comes to something like capitalism, that's a, that's a hot topic today. Uh, you know, the one side seems to have, let's just take something like uh, universal basic income. One side claims to have facts of why that never works. The other side claims to have facts of, of, of why it would or why it's necessary and essential. Um, so something like common good capitalism uh, seems to be a bit of a guiding light in, in that direction. Um, but but how, do, how do we take it seriously? How do we actually do something about it if it indeed, indeed is a way to to help restore a little bit of what capitalism was was maybe intended to do? So whirlwind of thought there but maybe mm -hmm. maybe we'll start off um for for listeners who have not read uh any of your your postings on common good capitalism maybe a little just overview of what common good capitalism is and then we can dive in and dissecting my thoughts here yeah it's a good place to start um common good capitalism is a phrase that comes out of what is often called catholic social thought so the best we can probably do in our podcast today is uh, see if we can bore you for the next 45 minutes now our uh, <laughs> i mean uh, e economists are not exactly what you call thrilling people to listen to um the best we can do is sort of frame up some of the challenges in this so we'll define it but we're also uh 
we're going to moderate what we can expect or hope to get done in this short podcast. And that would be at least a, a slight working familiarity with here's here's a model of capitalism that predates the Enlightenment, predates the Protestant work ethic. And here, here are the uh, biggest challenges for this to actually materialize or be manifested because it looks great on paper. And the reason that uh, I decided to write about it for Memorial Day is the fact two years ago we have a senator, a Republican senator, who speaks eloquently about Catholic social thought and, and uh, common good capitalism. And then in a recent David Brooks article, interview with President Biden, he speaks eloquently about Catholic social thought and common good capitalism. So there you go. We have a Republican and a Democrat. They're all for it. Problem solved. So, problem solved. So <laughs> we're now just going to waste the rest of your time, listener, because <laughs> this is a slam dunk. <laughs> okay. So first of all, common good capitalism. Common good capitalism, I'm not going to define it much as I'm, I'm going to ask you to imagine the uh, infinity symbol. Start there. So when, you, when I say imagine the symbol for infinity, what comes to your imagination, Pat? Just make sure we're on the same page here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're talking about the mathematics symbol. Um, the, it's like, almost like a figure eight, but it's uh, sideways, horizontal. That's right. It is a figure eight. And, I should uh, say it, almost like the number eight, but yes, figure eight is the correct word for it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, turned turned on its side, so it, it's this uh, infinite loop, back and forth, uh, round and round and round. Which, by the way, on a little rabbit trail here, did you know that my dad grew up in going to Chicago's Soldier Field, where they used to have figure eight stock car races? No, I did not know that. But I used to have a mini little car track. That was that. <laughs> okay, yeah. So same deal. You know, yeah. what, what was the biggest thrill? Uh, Getting if... through that center, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and maybe that's, uh, that's a good way to think about what's the biggest challenge with capital, uh, common good capitalism. But anyway, let's get back to defining it. So you have the infinity sig uh, symbol. On the right, if you can imagine, just kind of imagine, paste these words over it, social well-being. So social well-being takes into account, uh, uh, it would really, in a way, be called shalom in the Bible, but it takes into account all the issues of uh, human flourishing, family, institutions, faith, environment, um, you name it. The left is called economic prosperity. So on the right circle is social well-being. The left is economic prosperity. Which makes the argument that, uh, again, if you make the investment, you do the reward. Um, and uh, if you, uh, you know, as the Bible says, if someone won't, won't work, they shouldn't get paid. Um, so economic prosperity. Now, what, what's on both of these is the sense of uh, two things also drive it, which are very similar, again, to the Jewish notion of shalom, is first of all, uh, solidarity that this model is for the common good. That's why the right 
or human flourishing um, requires everyone flourishes. Uh, the, the, the tide lifts all boats. And also what's uh, uh, the second word is where we get our word help, that government uh, on occasion on a limited basis uh, provides help because sometimes people need a little help, a little infrastructure help to have access so that all flourish. So on the right, you have flourishing and on the our well, our social well-being is called, but the word well-being is the Hebrew word shalom. And on the left is economic prosperity. Now here's the point, just like the old figure eight uh, stuck, our little uh, uh, cars that you had, and I had those too, is um, the difference in this model is these, this loop is going on and on and on and on, just like a race, but the, the right drives the left. And um, so social well-being drives economic prosperity, but it doesn't say it drives it so much that it, it, uh, it sacrifices uh, economic well-being. It just keeps them both in tension, so to say. If you, now, if you have, first of all, if, that's, if you have that picture in your mind, if it's social field, social field or if it's the infinity signal, or if it's your little HO, HO is it, what were they called, HO? The race uh, cars? Uh, I'm not sure. I, don't know. I can't remember either. Yeah. But uh, if you have that in mind, any questions on that before we go any further? No, no, I'm with you. I'm with okay. You. Now, ask yourself the question. Why did it take Metzger a couple of minutes to explain this thing? <laughs> it's still early. I assumed it was just slow processing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm talking to Pat Brown. <laughs> he knows I need it slow and steady. <laughs> Michael Scott, the office. Okay, pretend I'm a fifth grader now. <laughs> There's actually... Why the involved explanation or even the depiction? Let me tell you why. Those two circles, that inner, actually that figure eight, actually overlays almost exactly with the right and left hemispheres of the brain. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Well, we always say interesting is a nonsensical word. <laughs> God is interesting, so was Hitler. Uh, it's fascinating. <laughs> it's fascinating in this regard. First of all, common good capitalism, if that's true, there, if there's this really tight alignment, it would require, it would require ambidex, ambidextrous thinking in other words, the ability to either bias the right hemisphere, which we know if you do that, it includes the left, or the 1% of the population that naturally thinks in an ambidextrous manner, both and right and left hemisphere. But here's our challenge, Pat. 95% of the Western world biases the left hemisphere. And and what you mean there when when you talk about it overlaying with the, the hemispheres is yes. that idea that the right is broadly vigilant 
yes and, uh, it can see the wider world it can see the wider problems it, it makes sense of social well-being it, it, it's more sensitive to it i guess you could say whereas the left is just driven towards results and that's where you get uh, profit value, shareholder value. Let's just let's just drive towards the dollar. Mm, not quite. Okay. Um, the you were right on the first one. The first one is widely or broadly vigilant. The right hemisphere, it's receptive and widely vigilant for what all might be out there. So it tends to see the bigger picture. The left is narrowly focused. One is not better than the other. So mm -hmm. the left hemisphere, by being narrowly focused, actually does tend to think more in terms of efficiency organization and bottom line, which is important. It is, yes. Mm -hmm. So there is not That's an inferior point. and a superior hemisphere. But we bias over 99% of any population biases one over the other. We know from picture drawing exercises and all sorts of other neuroimaging that they can do, that even 89% of people who bias their left hand, which mean or left hand rather, which because the brain is contralateral, because they use their left hand, they should be biasing the right hemisphere because the brain again, right, brain controls the left side of the body, left brain controls the right side of the body. Yet, in the Western world, 89% of people who are left-handed bias their left hemisphere. It's amazing. And if you want a book on this, again, we've been urging people to spend the rest of their life reading, <laughs> it's a long book, uh, reading the Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist. So we'll leave it at that. If you're curious, take the plunge. You won't drown. Um, so you have, when you have, uh, so even even artists often say, you know, hey, I'm an artist. I'm, you know, I'm right-brained. And we know that the neuroimaging reveals that if you're a poet, painter, singer, doesn't matter. Initially, you bias your right hemisphere in the discovery of the tools of the trade. But once you have those habituated or mastered, uh, artists tend to bias their left hemisphere for the rest of their work. It's just, a, it's really pretty amazing stuff. And here, so, yes, okay, Mike. So what's the point? Well, if there is a correlation between these two hemispheres operating like a figure eight, where the right hemisphere is supposed to drive the left, and if common good capitalism is a figure eight where the right drives the left, and throw the third thing in, the left hemisphere, when it drives the equation in the brain, operates independent of the right. Yeah, that's that's the key difference. The the right includes the left, but the left. That's right. Yeah, got it. 
That's correct. <laughs> so we don't get people confused. <laughs> so my question when I ask, so why does this take some length of time to explain it? I think it's pretty simple. Without being too simple, I'm not being simplistic. I think there's a rather sane, sensible way to approach this is that for 95% of the population, when they think any economic model, it's about economic, their individual, narrowly focused economic mm -hmm. prosperity. By default, we start in the left. We start in the left. And if you start to talk about, um, oh, could be uh, environmental degradation, you're going to get a response from conservatives like, oh, there go those damn liberals again about blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And you're going to get from others, um, you're going to get from the left, that's right, close up ExxonMobil in 10 years, get completely out of the fossil fuel business. And you just, you have the left hemisphere is reductionist either or. That's the downside. The right hemisphere, the downside is, it is not as articulate as the left. It, it has difficulty putting to words the complexities of something like a common good capitalism. But it's intuitive. So in the interview with uh, Joe Biden, by David Brooks, it's what I think anyone, regardless of what model you subscribe to, he points out that 1970 or 80, the average CEO made 40 times, 40, 40 times as much income as the average worker in, in a business. And then uh, that figure now is 340 times as much. And he, as does Marco Rubio, as I go, where, just somehow that doesn't, just doesn't seem right. right. Something yeah. seems off. Now you can see if you're in a left hemisphere, one that biases the left, you're either going to come up with an arbitrary number. Well, let's just make it 29.5. <laughs> Or you're going to feel, hey, the workers do his wages. You make the investment, you get the return. And I feel for people in the financial advisory services, the industry, uh, financial, uh, I mean, we have advisors and they're wonderful and they're doing a great and wonderful job. But I say they've done a wonderful job, you know what that means? We've got a really good return on Right. But can you imagine if your advisor saying, hey, Mike, Kathy, we got some good news for you here. <laughs> you haven't got uh, anywhere near the returns you could have, but we think as best as we can sort out common good capitalism and the well-being of all, um, we've actually, we've invested in some things that have lifted more boats They've risen the tide for more worldwide because of these investments. Oh, yeah, you try, you try selling that. <laughs>
I just think you're going to get glazed stares. You're going to go, what? I mean, the guy just walked out here. There, I heard him in the elevator. They were like, in this market, we have gotten a 12% or 15% return this past year. This is a wonderful place. You're telling me we got four? Because you think that we're actually cleaning, you know, we've, we've reduced the amount of the destruction of the rainforest in the Amazon? I don't give a damn about the Amazon. Yeah, I, I just I don't see that going over well. <laughs> this, you know, I think John Kay's book is worth the reading. Other people's money, mm. the real business of finance. And his the best phrase in this book is the I think, and he captures the mantra of a of a society that biases the left hemisphere is. Uh, I'll be gone, you'll be gone. And by that he means, I mean, I've had, I had a conversation once with someone and we were talking about uh, rising sea levels and uh, his response was, I don't worry about that, I'll be gone. Yeah, this is taking me back to several other conversations we've had about finances. I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, that's, that's why I, I really like the, um, just the, the vision of stewardship for your finances. You know, I, I think of at the end of the day, you know, if I, if I'm showing up to the heavenly gates and God's asking me to give an account of where I spend my money, you know, if I brag about my 12% stock market return that I retired early for, I, I don't think he's going to say, well, my good and faithful servant. <laughs> he's probably going to say, you could have gotten 15, you know? <laughs> what's, but no. what's the matter you? <laughs> but it is, it is that, uh, I've thought about this recently too, um, just with, you know, what, what does the average person think about uh, just when it comes to financially, what, what they're doing with their money. You know, I remember having a conversation with my wife and thinking about, wow, you know, I was, as, as we go on, as, as we, you know, make more throughout our, our, our career, quote unquote, um, you know, how do we do, how do we do well by this money? What, what do we do with it? And it's not meant just to sit in a bank account. Um, and it's great to, to have those conversations with my wife, but I wonder how often those conversations are had, you know, like there's, there's almost a sense to which it's like, well, yeah, we got to watch our, our barn. Is that filling up too much? You know, we, is our confidence growing in that? We, we gotta be mindful of that. Um, I, that's because of a, of just a different understanding of stewardship. It's hard for me to think that's what the world is going to just adopt. And, and to your point, just because it's a good idea doesn't mean people are going to embrace it. And so, yeah, how do we? Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's why I said we're, you know, we're going for very limited objectives today. It's, it's mostly to frame what's the gap between what is pre-enlightenment yeah. understandings. Because pre-enlightenment, now I know there are people that are allergic to uh, all things Catholic, you know, ATC Christians. And... Uh, so if it helps you, then I'll put it as um, um, 
common good capitalism, which I think would, would extend far beyond Catholic social thought. Catholic social thought has simply given a lot of thought to this as to the complexity of this because, and here I'm going to get in probably all sorts of hot water with all sorts of people, but in 1870, uh, actually as a Protestant wrote it, and we won't get into all the details, maybe in another one, but he uh, basically proposed one of the things with the Protestant work ethic, which is what Max Weber wrote about, and the spirit of capitalism, is the name of his book, The Protestant Work Ethic and the Spirit of, Cap of Capitalism, is it is more narrowly focused and industrious. So it has, it has um, produced amazing surge in economy, a la what we would say is the left circle. And I'm not in any way denigrating that. And it has lifted more people out of poverty. So it, it has produced, economic, it, 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 for social well-being, it has contributed to the right side that is social well-being because it's hard to talk about anything with shalom if you're saying the guy's saying you know I'm, I'm hungry and i've got food insecurities and you go well be warm and be blessed i want to talk to you about shalom mm -hmm. but it it's driven from the left in terms of a of a um it, it's narrowed it down to the rising income levels, mm, which right. is a part of it. But the fastest growing income levels, uh, most recently, include uh, two groups that we don't have answers for. So the rest of the equation, one would be China which is now the world's greatest polluter. And so you're making more. And also you have, uh, over the last 40 years prior to the first recession, one of the fastest growing income groups in the United States was the African-American. And yet they feel victimized and in China, the uh, environmental de degradation is horrific. Now, they're going to mandate right across the boards um, uh, electric vehicles. Let's just say they do it. How's China? This is the, this is the kind of the craziness of uh, electric. So the electricity, what, it comes out of the cloud? <laughs> it comes from coal fired plants of which China is building them at a rapid pace. Ever seen a coal fired plant? Ever seen how they mine coal? It doesn't come in an Amazon box. <laughs> and also um, the literal mining of the minerals required for the scale of electric vehicles is staggering. Mm -hmm. Now, again, on, a, on balance, this might be better all the way around instead of internal combustion electric. 
but no one has worked out, or, or, or few have rather, the infrastructure and the mining required for the minerals and the amount of minerals, but also uh, just where's the electricity come from? Because we have those who have said nuclear is not an option, uh, wind uh, and solar, it, the you, now you have the infrastructure you like the infrastructure to transport it so that's what that's what uh, common good capitalism takes into account is this is not as easy as it sounds but it is the right model protestant work ethic tends to reduce it down to i've done this much for this good but it also is skewing for the investor a higher return than, than some people just just kind of uncomfortable with. Um, and also it's, it's skewed in such a way that it's producing the, the haves and the have-nots and it was called the K-shaped recovery. And, and so while those who have their boats have been lifted, it's been a rising tide for others. I mean, the lake is bottomed out, it looks like Lake Mead. Google Lake Mead if you're not following Hoover Dam, by the way. Mm, yeah. And um, and it's a lot like that. So, you know, they were covering what's now appearing in Lake Mead are boats that sunk long ago they haven't seen for decades. And because the water levels dropped so dram dramatically. this it, The bottom has dropped out so dramatically for some in this K-shaped And you don't, you don't catch people in the Protestant work ethic we think about that stuff because as Max Weber said, the Protestant work ethic for all the good traps us in an iron cage of organization and efficiency, which is very emblematic of the left hemisphere, which loves straight lines, charts, organizations, and all those, by the way, have great benefit. But they, they can become so narrowly focused. I mean, I'll give you another example. I have yet to have a conversation of all the people I know who have done well in tech, the cloud, code, computing, the rest, to say, in one way, it one, it, or social media, you know, Google, Facebook, all of them, it, do you feel any solidarity, any remote sense of responsibility that you, to use Gene Twenge's phrase, have destroyed a generation? Google, the Atlantic article, has the smartphone destroyed a generation? Social isolation, depression, suicide, anxiety. I mean, you can rattle off the demonstrable effects of technologies. And the average person who has done well financially, reaped in millions, will go give you a blank stare. Not my problem. I'll be gone. You'll be gone. And I just find... This is the challenge with the reigning model of capitalism for all the good it has done for some, 
does not, doesn't evidence a great deal of right hemispheric thinking about the good of all. And so on the grand stage, well, the political stage, which is actually very downstream, uh, Marco Rubio and Joe Biden probably don't stand a snowball's chance in hell of having this, their, the model that they subscribe to become the model that actually drives policy. Yeah, you know, when I was in college, we we talked about, it was, it was at the time phrased corporate social responsibility. And I think it fits, it's, it's at least related or in line with what you're saying. You talked about there's more than just the bottom line profit. Um, there are, you know, and essentially there are costs and, and there is value that you can't always measure. So things like corporate social responsibility, maybe that's, uh, you know, s subtle, very simplistic examples would be like volunteer. You know, we studied companies that would give employees volunteer time to go work in their community. Very, very s simple example. That's probably just the, the surface of, of corporate social responsibility. But, but, uh, yeah, how's that working out? Well, you're right, right. But I think this just the, the the direction i think is correct uh, th that idea that there are even though we can't measure this we don't necessarily see a return on this like there's there's a good behind this so i guess you know that was over 10 years ago now jeez oh yeah uh, csr <laughs> corporate so csr has been around forever and uh, so, so let, me, yeah. let me give you my one take sent um Yep, go for Notice it. what's happened. <clears throat> First of all, you had a lot of eye rolling today with corporate social responsibility. Um, you know why? A lot of it's turned into yet another inclusion and diversity seminar. Now, break it up. Corporate. It is only in the right hemisphere that we think we. Mm -hmm. Corporate. Social. Yes, yeah, social well-being. It is only, again, you can blabber about any of these things. I'm talking about actually feeling the weight of them. Responsibility, break that apart. It's being responsible. The right hemisphere is responsible to all the stimuli that come into your brain. It is receptive. The left hemisphere is less responsible. It is more active do something about what I see. If the left loop isn't being fed by the right loop, the left loop is going to see very little. Pixar operates this way. When they make a film, they believe if you bias your left, you see initially 40% of the story. I think most, doesn't matter if you're on the right, left, up, down, what, what your political stripe is, what have you, most see 40% of what would be what I would call common good capitalism. And that 40% tends to be I, my return, individual return, maximizing shareholder return. We're throwing a bone over to the right and calling it corporate social responsibility. 
but it's not considered to be part of the bottom line. The I think the intent is right. Same with triple bottom line, people, pop, profits, planet. But the it's the institutionalizing of these things that yeah. certainly, I don't think it's going to happen in Washington right now, given this current status quo. So it could happen in private, privately held companies. So, why, why do okay. I say privately held? Why do you say privately held? Mm-hmm. Uh, because they're not chained to the uh, stock value, stock market value, the shareholder yeah. value. Yeah. The quarterly report. Yeah. Um, a, a really good book on this is Joy at Work by Dennis Bakke, B-A-K-K-E, the story of the company that he and, um, doesn't matter the, the business partner's name, but um, they, they're really putting some teeth into this. And you'll find that uh, once you go public, I just know how you do it. Yeah. Because you're gonna have activist boards and um, it becomes politicized. Politics, remember, is a good thing. It, it basically picks up the idea of the corporate, the the we, the community. But if it becomes politicized, then it, it becomes simply a matter of uh, of um, well, we're just going to mandate by twenty twenty five, you're out of the fossil fuel business. Yeah. So. I imagine when when you say something like, uh, I doubt this will get institutionalized, or uh, uh, I guess I, I have to guess many, including myself, immediately just think, well, I, I don't even, I, I get that it's not possible or it's not unlikely. I, I can't even picture what that looks like. Like what what does it mean? What do you mean when you say we could institutionalize this? Well, I would say start where you have actual, yeah, you're a good point. Uh, start, so start where you actually have some influence. And the uh, best I could tell, any sane, uh, rational person with a lick of imagination has influence over their own body and their own finances. Sure. So you could, um, you could easily read a quick little take on Catholic social thought, for example. And again, if you're uh, opposed to all things Catholic, just strike out the word Catholic and say common good capitalism and say, hey, honey, do you think we live this? And then say, so where does this bear out? Okay, say, let's actually do this. Um, Let's look at... um, where we have plowed our money and do do we really start with this assumption oh by the way i was gonna uh, so yeah let me back the way out so i was going to start with this book it was published 1870 and it was it was i think it was it was fascinating uh, i'll we'll bring it up in another one but basically a very thoughtful believer talking about well if you can't be a disciple if you own anything, if you have any possessions, then, um, and you look in the Bible, every seven years, the property rotated back to the original owner. There's really no such thing as private property. In fact, if you look at original law, 
written up, it was called land holder, not land owner. Now, if you start with that, some somewhere where you know what I'm, what I, what I think I'm suggesting, Pat, is somewhere along the way you have to be willing to see: Do you have enough muscle to lift a sledgehammer and at least put a crack in some of the assumptions about how economies work, and on just even down to the level of, um, well, this is my property. I can do what I want to do on this property, and. Because the reason, here's where I say that, is that 100 years ago, we were mostly a nation of renters. And debt was considered to be bad. That was a general consensus, not a Christian, a general consensus. Hmm. We've talked about it before, but uh, I, I watch, you know, an HG, HGTV show, not so much for the show, which is so boilerplate, it's, it's, it's mind-numbing. <laughs> um. But to see through the show as to what are the assumptions that they want to leach into the soil of your soul without you knowing it. Yeah, my kitchen's not up to date. My I, kitchen's I need up. a new kitchen. Oh, I hear people say, we can't cook in here. <laughs> now... So again, listeners, if you don't like this, well, hey, you're not paying for this, first of all. And second, <laughs> make your own podcast if you don't like this. But our God created by wise words, not just words, the Proverbs say by wisdom and understanding. These are wise words. Einstein said it well. The most important thing you can do is properly name something. That reflects the image of God. If we're serious as Christians about bearing the image of God, the likeness of God. That's, that's wise words to go, I can't cook in here. My God, it's a laminate countertop. <laughs> oh, I can't cook on an electric range. <laughs> really? So, Tell me again how the laws of physics don't work. That, well, I just can't. And uh, and then the second thing, so I began to notice that just years ago, and you just go, again, I'm just talking about becoming a wise Christian and at least beginning to be sensitized to the fact that the government incentivized home ownership through some spurious studies about homeowners are more responsible and blah, 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 blah. But and you incentivize those like with the mortgage interest deduction and so on and so forth. But it's, a, it's pretty much a pattern in all these shows. Little Biff and Susie sit out with a real estate agent and they're moving to Austin and they've got 500,000 to put down and the agent shows them the first home, shows them, says, can't afford it. No, no, the agent. Oh. Now, uh, this, this is, this is 670, yeah. <laughs> but I think you're going to love it. Yeah. It's, just a, it's just a little over budget. <laughs> and, you know, the fact is, they are going to love it. And now, if Augustine's right, my loves are my weight. They carry me. And so... Now, because the best we can tell, at least looking out in this backyard here, there's no tree here that's, you know, 
money is growing on the tree. So let's just say they're moving to Austin. They've got an income and it's uh, 120,000. Uh, and they had charted out that this percentage of their income, no more than 500, they could commit to a mortgage. And they buy the house for oh, amazing. They talked them down to 650. Well, they just took X out of X percentage out of play in their budget because banks get a little funny when you don't actually repay a mortgage. So what happens now is, let's just say out of your 100K, you had put aside your 35,000 of that every year was going to go into mortgage and interest, which you ever saw much of the interest was initially, you would almost wet your pants. And, uh, but I'm not opposed to the banks getting back their return. That's fine. But you just took and you upped it to 42,000. So you just took 7,000 out of play. And you didn't think about it. That's the power of institutions is the average American has close to 97% of their income spoken for. So you can talk about savings. Saving what? You can talk about giving. Giving what? It's not there. And so when someone says, yeah, I can't drive their car, it's got to, you know, I can't drive a car without leather seats. Well, I'm driving one right now without leather seats, and you have to make this profound discovery. <laughs> I'm like a little Einstein here. You can. <laughs> it's amazing. It seems to work fine. I haven't seen any detrimental effects to this point. Now, so I just, that's what we mean by, I admire the sensibilities, I think, of a Republican and a Democrat for common good capitalism, I think are very attractive. But you're also beholden to an electorate. Right. As Jefferson said, our system of government requires an educated electorate. And when I hear friends on one side of the aisle say, yeah, I, yep, I was all for Trump because he's good for, the, good for business. Oh, well, there's good left brain thinking. What about the larger issues? Well, you know, I kind of held my nose because he's good for business. Whose business? Not the Hispanic businesses this past year. But again, that's the corporate... Uh, common good capitalism is solidarity. So you actually go work in those communities and go, well, this is crap. Then on the other side is um, other friends who are just, um, you know, university, yeah, like you said, uh, free college, free this and free that, and give, you know, give Joe Biden credit. He's saying, I, I'm not, I'm not for that. Well, some of this initial, like this uh, gusher of stimulus, which they had to really hurry up to get out there because of the economy recovering so rapidly. Uh, and, and it's such a Soviet approach to it. So a whole bunch of us like us get the money. We don't need it. And people actually do need the money. Don't get it because you can't have central state you know, making an arbitrary decision on a, on a gusher of money 
and just set it up carte blanche. It's going to help some and others. It's just a, a huge frivolous waste. But what it does is it, 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 um, it just, uh, it creates, it creates, it's, it's the same problem on the, on the right. It's just, it's not common good capitalism because they want to not, the view of common good is government is helpful in a limited sense for periods of time. But these turn into permanent programs that are under, that, that we simply cannot afford and they, they gut the dignity of an individual, that they actually have some responsibility. And so where we are today is uh, uh, this, this isn't going to be worked out right now in Washington. It can't be worked out, uh, not with how polarized it is. But, uh, and that's why you're left with increasingly the, uh, the, the uh, model taken as executive action, just and mandate this and this and this and sure. uh, well that so i would say right now don't put any of your eggs in washington coming up with a big think solution and i'm saying big think solution because there's a good little book out there by david smick after the oh six housing crisis called uh, the world is curved and uh, it's a very accessible book but he comes to the end of the book and says, we need a big think solution for capitalism. And I think the big think solution is common good capitalism. But I think it ought to start right at home. You know, if salvation starts with the household of God, uh, it ought to start with your household. And it ought to be, do we, are we even aware of all of the various institutions that drive our behavior and how we understand finances. And I'd wager the average Christian, no. And so the thought of, I got to have this. You would have to actually build a small group that operates like a, a King Arthur's round table, a financial round table that would actually a la Methodism when it was holiness clubs way back in the early 1800s would actually call, call out in a charitable way, but to say, hmm, so you believe you're generous. Uh, well, let's, let's, uh, so how much did you make last year? Where'd you make the investments? Where'd you see today? It's not only private property, but it's private finances and at that point it's pretty much dead in the water because it leaves the, almost the entirety of the weight on just you and your spouse because you can't even find a small group in your church that would uh, have this kind of robust <laughs> conversation. I can see it now. The uh, the requirement for entry into the group is to turn over your past five years' tax returns. <laughs> well, there's a faith tradition in the United States that does that, that says if you're going to be an observant follower of Jesus, that's what you do. Wow, that's wild. <laughs> well, so it's because they're called the Mormons, by the way. I, I, uh, yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense. That seems fitting. Uh, and then you see again in our left brain model, especially amongst evangelicals, they would go, Ooh, that's none of your business, or Ooh, that's so invasive, or and they would go, No, 
No. Right. There's a reason why Rodney Stark says the Mormon tradition in many respects is most like the first century church. And one of them was, it said that they had nothing. Everything was common property. Hmm. They brought everything in the end. How would you like it today? If I don't think we really want to be the early church, you know, I was like, Oh, if we just be like the early church. Oh, great. So if you ever actually try to pull a fast one on how much you give versus how much you're telling people you give, you die. <laughs> yeah. This. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to highlight one thing that, that could, could be a disconnect. It was at least for me initially, but I think I see what you're saying here. And the disconnect is we've talked about institutions and, and they're important and escaping individualism to, to think institutionally. And yet what we're talking about here is seemingly initially, I think, you know, well, how do, how do we do this or, or what do we do about it, et cetera. And, and your point was, we'll start, start at home with your own finances. That sounds like we're going back to individual thinking, but I, I think what you're saying is there's a reality in which most of us probably don't can maybe can't comprehend or don't have as much practice in what it means to steward your finance as well. And yeah, that's so true. Start as a start as a family. Start as an individual. Learn what that means so that you can then institutionalize it. But you can't start institutionalizing something you don't understand. Is that is that close yeah, to that's where a, we're at? Yeah, I would agree. In fact, maybe that's a good point, Pat. So so perhaps scale it all the way back to this. Because you gotta start where people are. There's no doubt about that. Uh, I would maybe take a year and just meditate on Luke 1433. No one. No, I'm going to use the living exaggerated version of the Bible. <laughs> The, uh, the living book. No one, no one, no one can be a, one of my disciples if you have any possessions. Whew. Think of all the books you've ever read on discipleship. Yeah, they... They don't hit on that. <laughs> Not that I'm aware of, or they glide over it, or they elid it. But uh, why would Jesus say that, by the way? Because I think to the average person, it comes off as rather arbitrary. Why would Jesus say that? Let's just imagine for a moment, Jesus is the smartest person who ever walked the earth. Why would he say that? Uh um, I think there's almost a sense of like we've talked about man and before and confidence, but just this idea of possessive uh, to be possessive, uh, I think is it's really hard to uh, to let go of all that to enter enter the gates, so to speak. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's why it'd be good. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate. It. I I think that is in, in the, a very typical of how people respond, which is also very telling. And the telling is in the marital gospel, 
God is a jealous husband. I am jealous for all of Kathy's affections. If she loves anything else more than me, I'm jealous. This is not the marriage that, that I long for. Mm. And the reason they're called possessions is not that you possess them, but they will, but rather they will invariably possess you. you. Yeah. And you, only in the enlightenment of the last 500 years do we assume, oh no, uh, I can steward this stuff fine. Mm. Really? Well, give it all up. Now, does that remind you of a story in the Bible? Uh, the, the field, story of the field. The rich young ruler. <clears throat> now, see, we didn't, it doesn't say what he ruled. Let's just imagine this. Yeah, I've done well. I, I know how to rule and have dominion over this. It doesn't possess me. I'm in charge. I got it. Mm. Hey, what do I, what, what's it take to be one of your followers, Jesus? Well, do X, Y, Z. Done it. Check. Got it. Went through my net, my discipleship course. And I <laughs> uh, got, got straight A's. You know, actually an A plus. And uh, good. Well, sell everything you have and follow me then. Who's ruling who in that story? Or what is ruling who? Now we can look at that person and go, tisk, tisk. Really? We go tisk, tisk because we say he would actually give up eternal life to have stuff. And yet, how did Jesus and John, the Gospel of John, define life, eternal life? Knowing me. And John consciously and explicitly draws on Genesis, Adam knew Eve. I fear where a society and a faith tradition that we feel Allah, the enlightenment. Yeah, I own all this stuff, but it doesn't own me. I'm on top of it. Yeah, I know we can't have any possessions and I'm a steward of them. I love that word. Really. Give it all up. The old adage when I was a young believer and was exposed to some of this is, if you can't give it up, you don't own it, it owns you. 